Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. You bet. You bet. Thank you. So you did not make it up to the Razorback game because we hosted you on Saturday, right? You know, my timing is awful. I should have been here two days ago. I wonder about that, though. Did you deliberately avoid it? Because if you're flying on the taxpayer dime, right, you don't want to end up at a basketball game. Well, no, I would have gone. I would have loved that. Uh, We had some other obligations I couldn't. Uh, But I was sort of counting on them winning. If they'd won one more game, they would have gone to the final four. And I guarantee I would have been there. Oh, Uh, I have no doubt. uh, I have no doubt. We're very proud of them and uh, how they did this year. This is a fine man. We've got a great chance to get to know each other. Uh, One more round of applause and a very warm welcome to the Governor Hutchinson. So there are only so many details that uh, we can go into briefly about your biography, uh, but there's one that I think we skipped over. Uh, you know, you won the governor's office with the largest win in Arkansas history, the most number of votes, incredibly impressive. There's one that we didn't uh, talk about in the introduction, and I have a photograph, and isn't it wonderful that you've lived a blameless life, that you are not nervous? that a journalist is pulling a photograph out that you haven't seen. That worries me. (laughs) Well, should it? Yes. Uh, Tell me about this photograph. He has not seen this before, and I I realize folks at home can't either. Uh, Tell us what's in that photograph. Well, this is a uh, photograph of me uh, as a young United States attorney. Uh, In 1985, we had a terrorist group in uh, northern Arkansas called the Covenant, the Sword, and Arm of the Lord. Uh, It was a neo-Nazi terrorist group. Uh, They had engaged in murders, and uh, they had planned all kinds of uh, uh, violent acts. And so we went in to arrest uh, James Ellison, leader of that group. The FBI, the SWAT teams from five states were there. We had the hostage rescue team. And uh, they uh, sent a plane for me from Fort Smith because the leader wanted to negotiate with me. So this is a picture of me putting on a bulletproof vest. And uh, I will point out, you look to be about 10. Well, (laughs) you know, I didn't dress for the occasion because I was in a white shirt. Uh, But uh, that was an extraordinary time. Uh, We actually negotiated for three days. The uh, law enforcement did an incredible job. Uh, The leader of the group, along with uh, uh, a whole bunch of other bad guys in there, uh, surrendered without a shot being fired. It's one of the most successful law enforcement operations we had. No, sir, I'm going to I'm going to interrupt. It's one of the most badass things you've ever done. (laughs) You were unarmed. You were extremely young. You were the youngest U.S. attorney in the country, right? That's right. That's right. Unarmed. And you walked in and negotiated uh, a settlement that got them out without a shot fired. Uh, That's exactly right, and you can't help but contrast that to about a year later when you had the Waco disaster, and some of our agents that were there at uh, uh, the CSA compound actually were in Waco and got wounded. So it was extraordinary, but I've, you know, through that occasion, uh, United States Attorney under the Reagan administration, uh, head of the DEA, I've I've always uh, had a role with law enforcement and supporting them. And, of course, mm-hmm. as U.S. attorney, I did that. Mm-hmm. Now, what I was thinking at the time that I was putting on that bulletproof vest <laughs> as they threw that to me, I said, this is not why I went to law school. <laughs> but 
uh, <laughs> it was an extraordinary time, very important. Fast forward a couple of decades and you're the governor of, of Arkansas. And what are you doing in our fine city? I assume you're here to steal our, our talent and our tech talent. Well, actually, it, first of all, it's great to be back at the Commonwealth Club. 20 years later. Some uh, people don't realize, but 20 years, almost to the month uh, ago, I was here at the previous building. I spoke as head of the uh, DEA, and I want you to know that this reception is better than I got then. <laughs> uh, so it's great to be back, and I have such a respect for this uh, Commonwealth Club and its history. But what I'm here for is not only to talk about business in the technology sector and not necessarily to steal the technology business. I learned you can't do that because it's got a real presence here. Uh, but we have such a connection between Arkansas and the tech community here that a lot of people don't realize. And you think back in history uh, as to the connections between Arkansas and California. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in the uh, Dust Bowl time during the Great Depression that the Arkies and Okies and the Grapes of Wrath, they came out here. And that's part of our history. My mom and dad uh, were married during the Depression in Oklahoma. They didn't come out here. They moved to Arkansas, and we struggled on the farm. So that's my background, but it's also that connection between California has always been fascinating. Mm -hmm. And today you fast forward, and uh, today we visited with Zipline. It is a uh, startup company that's got uh, good revenue now. But they do drone deliveries. They make drones right here in the uh, San Francisco area. But they also have a facility in Arkansas because they're doing drone delivery for Walmart uh, to the customer and uh, dropping the merchandise by drone delivery. Incredible uh, technology there. So we're visiting with them. Uh, tomorrow we'll be uh, visiting with Gaddick, another uh, uh, tech company here that uh, is engaged in the autonomous uh, delivery. And we're the first state to actually deliver product through a driverless vehicle uh, from the middle mile, they call it, from the warehouse to the retail store. Uh, we're doing it on a fixed route, uh, but it is a California company, uh, Gaddick, uh, that uh, we're going to be visiting with. And so a lot of technology exchange between Arkansas mm -hmm. and California. That's why we're here, and uh, we love being here. You've, you've set up a commission in Arkansas to look at some of the laws and regulations because with Walmart being so important to Arkansas, that, that autonomous trucks, uh, drone delivery, those sorts of things, you would want to experiment. And you need to know, well, what laws do we need to adjust? What, have you found something out so far that you know you need to adjust to attract in that sort of technology? Well, some of them are very simple things, but, uh, for example, uh, we do have, we call it the Council on Future Mobility, and uh, we're looking at autonomous vehicles, uh, we're looking at electric vehicles, uh, we're looking at drones, we're looking at the future of transportation, and Arkansas has always led. We've got great logistics, we've got great trunking, trucking companies there, but what we see today is not, is what going to be delivering the product 10 years or 20 years from now. So we want to get ahead of the curve. And simple things, uh, for example, on autonomous vehicles, you look at all of our driver's rules, all of our transportation regulations, they talk about the uh, driver's side and the passenger side. Simple things like that are not meaningful whenever you're looking at an autonomous vehicle. And I know that everybody gets nervous when you think about a driverless vehicle. Is that really a safe thing to do? You think about the error-prone humans that mm -hmm. are looking at their text messages as they're trying to drive, uh, I think we can use sensors very effectively and be safe. Now, you, you are going to term out at the end of this term, and we'll talk more about that later. But some of your constituents, or a good deal of your constituents, are truck drivers or forklift operators or who work for Walmart. Uh, and they see their governor going out to California and looking at all the things. Now, how do you make that balance? Well, that's a good good question. And you know, the answer is that uh, if we don't uh, go with technology, then we're all going to be out of business. Yes. Uh, and as I came here, I looked out at the uh, port and I saw, uh, you know, container ship and container ship, container ship backed up 
uh, waiting, uh, being unloaded. And in Arkansas, we're waiting on those goods. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to have a more efficient means of uh, transporting our goods. And if we can use technology to accomplish that, uh, that's exactly what we need to do. There's always going to be uh, the uh, options of a, a driver behind the uh, truck. I mean, we're always going to need those services. But we don't have enough right now. And so the uh, trucking industry is looking for solutions. And if this can be one of the solutions, uh, that will be good for the consumer and it will be good for uh, those that are in the logistics uh, business. Speaking of, of laws and regulations, there are a number of laws in the South. In, in Texas, uh, Florida just signed don't, don't say gay or, you know, they don't call it that, but that's what we in the media call it. Uh, your state... Uh, where you're trying to attract talent, and I see this particularly in Texas, where people who in, I think, fairly unabashedly liberal San Francisco have issues with some of those laws. Uh, one of the ones you signed was, was a transgender a ban on transgender sports, the, the people moving back and forth. Um, do you understand when, when places like California object to that sort of thing? It's your state. It's your laws. It's your voters. No, we do understand, and that reflects the uh, diversity of our country and that we're all trying to sort through uh, these issues. Uh, But, for example, uh, Walmart, uh, you know, Tyson, some of our large uh, companies that depend upon diverse talent, uh, they have a very inclusive uh, workplace, Mm -hmm. and they express their concern. Now, uh, you know, I I look at there was two bills that came to my desk. Uh, One of them was a uh, transgender health bill, and I vetoed that, uh, which restricted, uh, you know, the health care being delivered to transgender youth. I vetoed it. It was overridden. And that just reflects, you know, the consensus in the legislature on it. The other one was uh, that simply banned biological males from competing in women's sports, and that just made sense to me. And so I did sign that. And... I think that's something that, uh, you know, you don't want to deprive anyone uh, of the ability to compete in sports, but you've got to have a fair playing field for the women athletics. And I believe in that. uh, And I've got a daughter and I want them to have every opportunity and my grandchildren as well. And I think that's that's about fairness. As head of the National Governors Association, uh, you know, Spencer Cox quite well, uh, who I think makes an incredible balance of his conservatism with understanding where the world is going, et cetera. He vetoed uh, a transgender sports bill not too long ago. And I just I I think what he said was so interesting. I want to read it. He said about the bill, there are four kids in the state, four kids who are dominating or winning trophies or taking scholarships, just four kids trying to find some friends and feel like they're part of something. Uh, I'm not I'm not challenging you with with responding to that, but uh, You and Cox and a number of other Republican governors at a time in which we have grown so far apart have found ways of of bringing us together in some fashion. I think his veto is going to get overridden by the Utah legislature, and he may know that. Uh, But uh, what I thought we wrote was was just was touching. He said, why are we doing this? It's four kids. I have incredible respect for Governor Cox, and he's a very uh, strong thought leader. Governor Holcomb of Indiana also vetoed a very similar bill. They'll both perhaps be overridden. And his point, Governor Cox's point, is very telling because he said it's not a problem in Utah. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't have, and I think it's what Governor Holcomb said as well, and I looked at Arkansas, and we don't have transgender youth that we know are competing. Uh, And so we're, we're passing laws that may or may not solve a problem or may or may not be necessary. In fact, it'll get us on television. It'll it'll raise some money. And, and that there's a couple important points here. First of all, you look at the Republican Party. Uh, we have a debate uh, among, I mean, our governors, uh, some disagree. You've got Governor Cox, Governor Holcomb on one side. You've got other governors disagree. So we're engaged in a debate, and that's healthy to have these discussions. You're going to have differences of opinion. Uh, and then... Uh, secondly, we've got to avoid the habit 
Uh, and I'm a Ronald Reagan conservative where I don't believe government is a solution to every problem that we can dream up. And so whenever we see an issue, particularly in the cultural side, I think you've got to determine, is this an issue that should be addressed by the family? Uh, is it an issue that is better addressed by a school board? Uh, and at that local level versus passing state laws or national laws even. And I think that is what I believe is a restraint of government. And we do need to get back to a restraint of government and not looking that as the answer to every problem. Well, and I'm going to take some blame for this, too, in the media. And that is, you know, we can take an issue. You could find an issue that would raise you money from the voters, uh, that would get you on, uh, you know, Fox News Sunday and, and meet the press and whatnot. And it could be an issue that really, honestly, who cares? You know, it's just it's it affects so few people or we can deal with it another way. But it raises money. And we've gotten to that point in so many of these issues. Well, that's true. That's true. There's there's a dynamic that's not healthy for our society in which extremes uh uh, you know, drive us apart, and but it also generates uh, a listening audience. Uh, and I look at uh, some of the talk shows today, and and they are playing more to the base, whether it's left or right, mm -hmm. uh, versus uh, bringing on guests that might seek some common ground. And I think there's still that opportunity. We talk about the National Governors Association. I'm proud to be chairman of that. Uh, it's an honor because it's bipartisan. And uh, there's a lot of things uh, that our Democrat colleagues and the Republican colleagues uh, do not agree upon. But guess what? Every once in a while, we can find those narrow things that we can say, this is education. This is something we work together on. Or it might be uh, infrastructure. And those are both examples of su successes that we've had in working together in a bipartisan way. And that's one of my motivations in politics is to try to pull people, bring people together more than pulling them apart. And, uh, and to do that, you got to spend a lot of time listening and trying to find that common ground. It's easier when we can all point to a set of facts that, that the sun rises in the east and that, uh, and, and, and that frustrates me oftentimes when we cannot agree on the very fundamental basic facts. Uh, I know you know that Joe Biden won the election in 2020. This is something we can agree on. Uh, it, we can't agree upon. That. Okay. Do yes. you have do you have any discomforts? <laughs> oh, I wasn't. Now I seem. Now it seems like I'm pandering. <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, that idea that that if we cannot agree on those sorts of facts, that it becomes very difficult to to debate the minutia of the things that are going to really matter with policy. Uh, if, if we cannot agree, uh, you know, uh, uh, masks is one of them. In California, we had a rule that you had to wear a mask. In Arkansas, you signed a bill that said you can't have a rule, you have to wear a mask. Have I got that about right? Uh, that's correct, for the government. Yes, okay. Uh, well, actually, uh, so, you, you but where would we, and masks are, thank goodness, over, but where would we compromise there, you know? Well, first of all, uh, that's been a challenge for us. You talk about agreeing upon facts that during the pandemic, uh, we got polarized and we could not even have uh, a common set of facts that we could agree upon. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the challenge to us was, and I say to us, I'm talking about the nation as a whole, that the facts changed, the data changed. And you know, what you saw at the very beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know very much. We made some decisions then. And then uh, as science improved or as we got more data, change, decisions were made differently. And then as you progressed through, uh, you came to another set of conclusions. And then some people saw that and said, uh, you know, everybody's lying to us. No, it is a matter of making decisions based upon the best information you have at the time and and what you believe science dictates and what you believe the public can accept and that part the last part of it is different in a lot of different states you have a, mm -hmm. a big difference of opinion uh, but we're coming through that and in terms of where in arkansas uh, i had some different opinions with uh, some of the other republican governors that passed laws and they signed them that said private business could not have a vaccine requirement. 
I disagree with that. I think a Republican principle is that, you know, the private sector, if they want to protect their workplace, whether it is from uh, drug testing or whether it is from requirement of vaccine, that's a prerogative that they ought to have. And so that was the position I took, which was different from some some other uh, Republican uh, governors. And so we didn't prohibit uh, our private businesses from doing it. Uh, from having a vaccine requirement. The state does not have one. And so we did pass a law saying the state can't require it, the state can't mandate masks. That was after I did require masks at one particular point in time. So a lot of, you know, inner workings with the uh, state legislature that uh, they wanted to see that as their prerogative versus executive prerogative. But every state managed it a little bit differently reflects the diversity of our country, and whether it was the Biden administration or the Trump administration, the governors played a key role. Yes, it did. Every step of the way, and uh, I think, by and large, uh, I think the Republicans, the the Democrat and Republican governors reflected their states and their different uh, approaches to this, and we'll have a judgment down the road on how everybody... Well, I was going to ask that, because whether you're you're a governor or a president at the time of uh, the worst of the coronavirus, that is going to be a major part of your legacy. Uh, And do you... Are you comfortable with everything the way it came out? Because at no other time in history did a state governor deal with the possibility of so many deaths, whether it's California or Florida or Michigan or New York or or Arkansas, where these decisions were were literally life and death. Well, there's a it's a time that uh, I hope we never have to go through again. I hope we don't have an uptick. I know we're all wanted to be finished with it completely. Aren't we glad to be here? Uh, I am. I'm at the top of that list. Uh, but it was a challenging time. It tested leadership. It tested communication. Uh, but, uh, you know, we do need to have a review of it. And that's a, a major point that uh, whenever the dust settles on this uh, pandemic, we need to have a 9-11 type commission and uh, that reviews it. And I welcome that because I want uh, history to review what were the right decisions, what were the wrong decisions, and uh, I, I can handle it if we made a mistake in it. We made the best judgment as we could go along. I think one of the best decisions that uh, I made was that uh, we did keep uh, our businesses open, and uh, and I remember after you know the, the pandemic hit in March of 2020. Just like everybody else, our schools were closed, went virtual, that closed, went virtual. But then that summer, uh, I made up my mind we needed to reopen schools. And we reopened the schools the next year. We kept them open to in-classroom instruction. We shifted virtually when we had to. Uh, but that was one of the best decisions. And we kept our businesses open. Some states said, well, you're an essential business and you're a non-essential business. The non-essential business has got to close. We're going to keep these essential businesses open. Mm. It made no sense to me. We're one of five states, I believe it was, that never made that distinction. We kept them open. And in hindsight, I think that's one of the reasons we've recovered quickly. But it was also, it's a matter of providing for your family. It's a, it was a matter of, of uh, you know, what's the right government action and the, not the right government action. For Arkansas, we kept them open. That was a good decision, in my judgment. What are you doing in Arkansas that we should do in California? We always, we Californians tell you what to do and how, how we're, we got all the right ideas. <laughs> well, uh, first of all. I'm sure it doesn't grow tiresome at all. <laughs> California carries a big stick. Yes. I tell you, in, in, every, in every way. But uh, we're growing as a state, uh, and what uh, you can see from Arkansas is, first of all, uh, we have a balanced budget, and we've had a balanced budget for 50 years or more. Uh, It's mandated by law that we have that. Uh, We have cut taxes. When I became governor, our tax rate, individual income tax rate in Arkansas was 7%. Hmm. And we have lowered that consistently down to... 5.5%. And uh, that is in the middle of a uh, pandemic that we continue to lower that because our economy continued to grow. And so uh, that was necessary for us because I'm next door to Texas that's got no income tax. 
and uh, Tennessee on the other side that's got no income tax. And so uh, we're being competitive. We're lowering our tax. And guess what? We did that. We grew the private sector and we managed state government. And uh, we have uh, $1.2 billion in reserve funds. We've got a surplus right now. We've raised teacher pay. We've raised law enforcement pay. Uh, we've had the largest increase in education funding. And so uh, I'm not telling California what to do, but I'm saying that works really well for us. And, uh, and people like to go to lower tax states. One of the things that you've mandated with, I assume, with that money helps is uh, computer science education. You're one of, what, three states that require it? It's a requirement in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me take a moment on that, because that was not only the key issue that I wanted to serve as governor and lead on, but also as chairman of the National Governor Association, I'm pushing nationally computer science education. And how this started is when I was in Homeland Security, uh, I saw that we can best protect our country from a terrorist attack through technology, data analytics. Hmm. And it was such a key tool. Uh, fast forward, when I'm running for governor in 2014, my granddaughter, Ella Beth, who was 11 years old at the time, made me a mobile campaign app uh, with her dad uh, over the summer. She gave it to me, and you can volunteer, you can contribute. She's 11 years old. <laughs> and I said, we ought to, if she can do this, we can do more in our schools. And so the first thing we did, we required every high school in Arkansas to offer computer science, to offer it. We integrated a curriculum of our lower grades, and all of a sudden we went from 1,100 students taking computer science to today we have over 12,500 students taking it. We have more girls taking it, more minorities taking it, and this year we did mandate it as a requirement to graduate. And so we're one of three states that have done that, and it's transformed our opportunities for our young people. But what it's also done is that it's reimagined education, where we had fewer than 20 teachers that could certify to teach computer science when we started. Now we have over 650 hmm. that are certified. So uh, they have transformed the education. But what is the biggest benefit to our state, besides the students, is that it brings technology companies in. And we have technology companies, logistics companies, and we aren't going to be able to keep them if we don't provide the talent. You've got Stanford University. You've got uh, high-tech skills here. You need to say Cal Berkeley also, if you're going uh, to mention one. Uh, all right, I've got to be yeah. political here. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bipartisan group out there. Um, and so it's been a very successful initiative. It's sort of uh, one of my legacy issues with computer science education. And now we're promoting it nationally uh, with all the governors. Uh, we're having uh, regional conferences in Boston. We did in Bentonville. We're in Denver. And so your, our goal is to see this uh, proceed very quickly and accelerate in terms of our education because it's a national security issue for our country. If we cannot develop the talent to uh, determine our technological future, then we're going to either import that talent or we're going to fall behind. And we cannot fall behind in this area of technology uh, and uh, the future opportunity it brings for our young people. Speaking of technology, you have a lot of aerospace, and some of them are literally making the, the warheads that are taking out those tanks. Uh, you visited some of those, those factories recently. I did. And first, I'll say I went to Israel this year right between the Delta variant and the Omicron variant. I got to go to Israel. <laughs> and as I went to Israel, I got to meet with the prime minister and I spoke at their smart mobility conference mm. there. But the prime minister found out that in South Arkansas, we have another California company, Aerojet Rocketdyne, that has locations, facilities in Camden, Arkansas. And we have uh, uh, Lockheed Martin. Uh, we've got Raytheon. And these companies also produce the Iron Dome for Israel that protects Israel from the rocket attacks. And so as I'm with the uh, prime minister, he says to me, Governor, would you go back to Arkansas and thank them for making what it takes to protect Israel. And so 
I was able to convey that message, and then uh, they're making uh, the javelins, uh, many of the uh, missiles that are needed as defensive weapons for Ukraine. So I went down there, had an incredible town hall meeting with those defense workers. I thank them for what they're doing. And uh, Arkansas is one of our leading exports is aerial defense products. And, of course, that's big in California. It's, it's uh, significant to us in Arkansas. And, uh, and I tell you, whenever they're making these defensive weapons, they're thinking about the lives that it saves in Ukraine. And every night we all go home and we see suffering in that country. We see the incredible courage of President Zelensky. And, uh, and we're thinking, what more can we do? Should we be doing more to support Ukraine? And uh, I, for one, believe that President Biden has handled this well in bringing Europe together in support of this effort. And I think Europe has stepped up to the plate. But we're providing them defensive materials to protect Ukrainians. But what they need are those MiG missiles from Poland. Mm. And we need to get them the weaponry that they need to protect themselves, whether it is on ground or their airspace. And we don't want to accelerate that war, but we need to help Ukraine protect themselves. That is the balance, isn't it? Trying to find the difference between supplying them and and causing the Third World War. That is absolutely true. And that's the reason I I don't believe we should do a, uh, uh, you know, a, a air-free zone uh, over Ukraine, no-fly zone, because that would require us to take out some of the surface-to-air missiles that are on in Russian sovereign territory, and you don't, we can't do that, and you don't want to jeopardize our pilots without that. And so you can't do that, but uh, you can do more to give Ukraine the tools. Secondly, I don't believe we can let Mr. Putin determine the actions that we take. Mm-hmm. I don't think he can draw the line and say, you can't cross this. I think uh, we need to give Ukraine independently what they need to protect themselves. And we need to do it very quickly. You, you have also offered as the state of Arkansas to shelter Ukrainian refugees. I have. I mean, that's, uh, that's not a hard call. No. But it was an important thing. And, and while uh, Europe is taking most of those refugees... And naturally so. Uh, It's close geographically. Uh, Whenever President Biden said that the United States will take, uh, what was it, 100,000 or so uh, refugees, I immediately said uh, Arkansas supports that and we will take it. And I had actually calls from different places in Arkansas saying we want them here. Mm -hmm. And it's it's an affection that we have. It's it's an identity with their suffering, their love for freedom. Uh, but it's the right thing to do. And you did the same with Afghan refugees. We did. And that was not uh, received in the same way, but it was actually very important because these are our, uh, could be interpreters, it could be those that stood by our troops over there. Uh, we were pulling out, it's causing uh, untold uh, damage there in Afghanistan. So uh, Arkansas stepped up and said, yes, we you, will take our... You said not accepted in the same way. I assume you mean that some of your constituents had some concerns. I did, and, and most of them, by and large, understood the importance of accepting them. But, you know, it's, uh, it was a different culture. There was a little bit more hesitancy there. Uh, but we, t- we took those. We have uh, hundreds of Afghan refugees in Arkansas, and we want to provide that same uh, level of, of love for them that that uh, wanted to have an opportunity for a new life as we do other refugees. I appreciate you speaking about that honestly. Now, uh, with your experience in Homeland Security, we also have Central American refugees. Where do we accept them? Well, I mean, first of all, we have, uh, what, a couple of different countries that have a protected status. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about uh, uh, those that came, I believe, from El Salvador during Mm -hmm. the war. So we have taken large numbers of uh, refugees uh, from uh, those Central American countries that were war-torn for a particular period of time. Now, if you fast forward to where we are today, uh, we've we've got a serious problem on our southern border. And I believe we are a land of immigrants. Uh, We cherish that melting pot of America, and we can't ever forget the 
vibrancy that immigrants bring to our country and their thirst for freedom. But we do have to have that legal path. And so uh, I think we have to be stronger on our southern border, but also we need to help Mexico be stronger on their southern border. Uh, and that's where we have a lot of the, the caravans that come up. And that is a heartache for any mom or dad to it, see. It is because, you know, it's hard to, to see the small Ukrainian child who is fleeing violence. And it's hard to see the small Central American child who is fleeing violence. So you and I would take our wife and our children and, and cross that border ourselves, I'm quite sure, to get them to safety. Uh, there's, we, would do if, we would do what was necessary to protect our family. Yes. And then there's also the economic opportunities that they, that they seek as well. And so we have to be a country that accepts genuine asylum seekers, whether they're from Central America or not. Uh, but they have to have uh, the checks done to make sure that's a legitimate asylum claim because you do have the uh, trafficking groups that are bringing up uh, uh, for, for money and uh, they are uh, not legitimate claims and uh, we've got to be able to sort through those. But uh, one, we have to have the means to provide asylum for those legitimate refugees Secondly, uh, we need to help change the dynamics in those Central American countries so that uh, they don't uh, see only the opportunities for their life and their children here in the United States. Uh, hopefully we can uh, achieve that balance that's needed. You were also the head of the Drug Enforcement Agency, and you mentioned the last time that you were here that there were protesters outside. And I almost am a little disappointed there are no protesters. You know, I, you know you're not maybe stirring up the pot enough. Uh, but I saw a photograph of uh, one fellow had a big top hat and little sunglasses, and, it, and on the sign it said something about pot or something like that, which, of course, now is entirely legal in California. Uh, there have been these terrible, terrible progression with some of the other uh, opioids that have been just awful. Uh, when you look at the, at the landscape, and I, I kind of want to break it into both marijuana and opioids. Let's maybe start with marijuana. But when you look at the, the landscape and you think, you know, I, I, I spent part of my career trying to stop this. Do you feel like you lost in the end? Well, whenever you're looking at marijuana, yeah, the climate has changed dramatically. Uh, but it was once your job to keep marijuana, and, and obviously some states still do. But well, actually, it's it's still a violation of federal, federal law. law. Yes. Now they got a few clauses in there that winks and nods at the states that they can do what they want to do on marijuana. And Arkansas, the voters voted in medical marijuana, and so you know under my leadership, we have now uh, cultivation centers, we've got retail distribution centers. So I'm head of the DEA, and life has changed. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it, it's a serious problem uh, whenever you look at the opioids, when you look at uh, the fentanyl. And that's the serious side of my question is, could you have imagined at the time that this would get so much worse? Uh, it was my hope that it would not. But it has gotten worse in the sense of of uh, we've lost so many lives and the fentanyl is something that's new that's coming in that's so deadly. And uh, it's poisoning our streets. And then the, uh, the opioids that takes uh, someone that has an injury and all of a sudden they're addicted, uh, we have to change that. And it's also, and let me talk about when I was head of the DA just for a Please. second. Uh, I was a DA administrator that believed that law enforcement is critical because that brings people to confront their addiction many times and that will lead into treatment. Secondly, you need to have investment in education and you need to have investment in uh, the rehabilitation side. And so that's why I believed in drug courts uh, that gives alternative to incarceration for those that have an addiction problem. I've taken that philosophy as governor. And, uh, you know, we don't need to be sentencing to long terms. Those that have a, uh, a, an addiction problem, we need to get them help. And we've tried to address it in that way. We've got to invest more in the mental health side, the addiction counseling, uh, both uh, as a state and as a nation, 
because it's really uh, hurting our families. You've actually given me a great segue to one of our uh, uh, audience questions. And a reminder, if you uh, you can send them up here or if you're on YouTube, put them in the in the chat. In light of the commonalities you shared between California and Arkansas, do you also ha- you do you also have a rampant homeless problem in your state? And if so, could you please shed some light on how you are handling it? We do not have the homeless problem in Arkansas that you see in California. Uh, we do have homeless, and uh, I think the the approach that you've got to take is to make sure that you have an investment in shelters so that they have an alternative that they can go to a shelter as needed. You also know that, uh, and this is true across the country, that uh, it could be an addiction problem that they have uh, or a mental health problem, and we've got to address those head on. Uh, but I do believe as a nation that... Uh, we need to make sure we provide uh, those options for our homeless and that we continue to care for them. But we also don't want that to be the image of America. And uh, we don't want to fuel that and increase that. We want to provide the resources to reduce that. And that should be an objective. And and some, somehow we're seeing, uh, I think, our homeless population really grow across the country and our larger cities particularly. Question asks, what does the Republican Party do to get back to the traditional values? And, and you spoke of a number of them. Uh, and I, I, I'm going to this isn't on the card, but I'm going to add to that question. When we think of what traditional Republican values are, free trade, uh, low tariffs, world engagement, um, those aren't currently Republican values. How do we how do we even define the problem? The 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 Governor Hutchinson's and the and the Governor Cox's and the John McCain's and the uh, Tom Cotton's of the world are different than DeSantis and and some of the others. And and how do you think of yourself? Uh, you said a Reagan Republican, and and it's telling that you had to make that distinction. Well, my parents were independents. Uh, one voted for John Kennedy, one voted for Richard Nixon. Uh, I grew up in making my own decision, and I identified with the principles of Ronald Reagan, and I'll expand on what you said as what I think are fundamental Republican principles. But it's a, the, the principles are our country. I mean, it's, it is world-engaged. It's leadership. It's a strong America. That is so important about our country. And uh, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the Russian dissident, if America doesn't lead the free world, the free world will not have a leader. Mm-hmm. And so we have a responsibility, and I want America to lead and be strong enough to lead. Uh, it's about equal opportunity. And what other uh, countries see about America is that you can start on the bottom rung and you can be on the top rung economically. You can progress, and it's unique about America, the opportunities we have. And that's about a fair system. And we have to fight for fairness, and that's what the Republican Party ought to be representing is fairness in our system, whether it is criminal justice or economic opportunities. Those are fundamental values. And then it's the restraint of government as well. And you apply that in different ways, but, uh, you know, I, I think you always have to ask yourself, is this the role of government or is this the role of the private sector and the nonprofit community uh, is it the role of the family? And so we've got to not always look at government as a solution to every problem. Those are, to me, Republican principles. But you start really with a strong America, uh, with a commitment to freedom, equal justice, and that fair opportunity to move up that ladder. You earlier said that you would support a, a commission, a 9-11 style commission, uh, to look into what went, what we did well. And what we did poorly in COVID, because it would protect a generation 100 years from now. You know, we did this. We learned from it. We wrote it all down. Here you go. I think there would be some in the Republican Party that would push back against that. Uh, they pushed back against the, the January 6th commission, which I, uh, there was an attack on a Capitol. Of course, we're going to you know, try to investigate that. Um, does that fr- do you get pushback and does it frustrate you? Uh, it doesn't frustrate me, and that's very important that you, uh, you know, I belong to a tribe, but uh, I don't, I'm not a tribalist. Uh, uh, not everything my tribe does is always right, 
And we need to be able to think through these issues. And uh, to me, uh, January 6th was a terrible uh, embarrassment to our democracy and to our peaceful transition of power. It was crimes that were committed that day against uh, our our democracy. And so uh, we ought to support a review of that. Uh, Now, January 6th, you know, what's happening in Congress is not a perfect system. There's better ways to do it, but we need a review of that. Uh, We need a 9-11. And and sure, you're right. Some of my party won't agree with that, but I think it's important. And and you've got to work together to be able to figure out uh, the right way to do it. Let me come back to another point on the party, though, that impacts California. Uh, I believe the Republican Party needs to be able to have a message that can resonate in California. Uh, We cannot win the presidency. We cannot continue to be a national party if we cannot build and have a message that works in in the West Coast. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, whenever you talk about the importance of the rule of law and respect for that, and and, uh, that, that should resonate in California when you're talking about uh, the finding the common ground on education and the strong America that can lead. Uh, those are messages that resonate here. And somehow we have got off target in our tenor where we are no longer a compassionate people. And we've got to remember that we are compassionate uh, as well as principled. And you can have both. I look back, and this is just a personal observation. This reflects nothing about, you know, anything I represent, et cetera. But I look back at uh, the previous two uh, presidential elections where your choice was Barack Obama or John McCain, and then Barack Obama or Mitt Romney. And what wonderful choices they were. Um, that, that Yes, you may have come down one way or the other, but any of those men would have been fine presidents of the United States. It was not the, you know, the hold your nose and and pull the lever sort of thing. You're exactly right. And that's where, you know, if you look at bipartisan issues and how you work together, the first principle is you have to stop demonizing the other side. And uh, and I'll never forget John McCain, uh, where someone uh, in a town hall meeting, stood up and said something really bad about Barack Obama and so John he was, McCain. He was an Islamist or something. Yeah. yeah. And, and he came to his defense. Yeah. And I tell you, that's what I miss about John McCain yes. is uh, that honesty and frankness. And, and you know, there's plenty of things to disagree about. And, and I want everybody to understand that uh, I feel very firmly in my convictions. I've been in this for a long, long time. Uh, But you can be principled and you can at the same time work to find some common areas and you can respect and be civil in the debate that you have. And that's what my passion is looking ahead for our country, uh, that we have that kind of leadership again. Well, there's the question. Are we polarized? This is from the uh, viewers and, and people here tonight. Are we polarized to the point making national survival impossible in present form? Well, I think we all have to be. That's a great question. Uh, And we need to be introspective about this. I think political leaders need to look at, am I conducting myself in a way that reflects on the goodness of America and the future of America and the and and the the model of public service that we want uh, and the the model of civility? But I think it's also, as you pointed out, uh, Scott, the the media has to be introspective here. And uh, I can't tell you how many shows that I've been bumped from because I was not crazy enough. Uh, <laughs> I, as, as someone who produces television, I can totally see that. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, we've run out of time. Uh, we, our apologies to Governor Hutchinson. Uh, and, and so the, the and, and there's there's a, I, I'm on the national media quite a bit. Sure. There's shows I won't go on. Uh, there's shows I will go oh, on. Oh, go tell us. Yes, what? Well, go on. Go I on. will go on a show that gives you a chance actually to answer the question, <laughs> where you can get your message out, uh, and that you're not simply a tool for the agenda of the <laughs> interviewer. Now, anyway, I, I don't want to be harsh on the media, but we need to be interested. No, be harsh on the media. But, but also, it's deserved. It's it's everyone in this room, and it's and it's every it, it's every town hall meeting. Uh, you know. It's school board meetings. You know, how do we conduct ourselves with people we disagree with? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. It's social media. You know, how do we convey our thoughts without being an arsonist? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and we'll learn our way through this. I'm, I'm an optimist about America. Uh, you ask, uh, you know, are we going to continue to be a great nation? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we'll get it together. And uh, I think the, the future is very bright. But I think a little introspection is good sometimes. One of the uh, things I th- in social media every Christmas, uh, somebody objects to the Starbucks cup. Uh, and we in the media will then say, well, you know, there's this thing. And it's just one lady, one lady in some town online who is now worried about the reindeer and what they represent or something. And I watch us do that. And you think before social media, nobody cared what she thought. And now we're broadcasting it. And now people are taking sides. And, and I will take I will take the blame uh, for the media for that, that, that we do that. Uh, this is an online question, and a reminder, if you're watching on YouTube, you can put questions in the chat. What is your relationship with the Democratic governors, including past ones in your state, I wonder to whom they're speaking, and current Democratic governors? You know, uh, uh, let's think about past uh, Democratic governors in Arkansas, <laughs> uh, one of them being Bill Clinton. Oh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's who you were thinking about. Uh, but uh, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, when he was governor of Arkansas, I was chairman of the, of the state Republican Party. And uh, uh, then when I was in Congress, he was president. Uh, and by the way, that was the last time we had a balanced budget in our nation mm-hmm. when I was in Congress and he was president. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, and George Bush was, was president, too, during that time. Uh, but a, a good relationship. Now, we've been competitors, uh, but respectful competitors. Uh, and uh, I've had a, it, we've really worked together on a number of projects, including uh, some of the uh, projects that he has through the uh, Clinton Foundation in Little Rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Mike Beebe, former governor of Arkansas, my predecessor, I ran against him and I lost. And then he had governor eight years. And I came back and I won. And uh, we have a, a good relationship. But let me talk about current governors. Phil Murphy is my vice chairman, governor of, uh, of uh, New Jersey. And uh, uh, he and I have worked together on a number of projects in, in terms of of, uh, of messaging in behalf of the national governors. And so, you know, we've issued statements in support of the infrastructure bill. We just issued a statement today about America's competitiveness and how we need to do more uh, technology development here uh, versus uh, doing the manufacturing in China or elsewhere and being dependent upon it. You know, how we arrive at that is we negotiate the language. And so, you know, first they want to come out and they want to be full, fully supportive of the, uh, the Senate or the House bill. And I say, no, 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 I can't do that. I'm not going to agree to that. And we negotiate. We find common ground. And so I, I like working uh, with him. And uh, John Bell Edwards down in Louisiana, uh, he's uh, a little bit of a blue dog uh, Democrat governor, but he's a Democrat. And I'll be with him next week mm-hmm. uh, at a human trafficking conference. And so, uh, you know, the National Governor Association is probably one of the few truly bipartisan, effective groups today. When I was in Congress, you would have bipartisan meetings. Well, they started training everybody separately. And so you, you don't have that opportunity to work together again. You have the Republican caucus. You got the Democratic caucus. The governors, we have a National Governors Association that we work together and uh, I think it's an effective organization, and it goes to prove that governors can make a difference in national policy, and uh, Democrats and Republicans can find, whether it's infrastructure, computer science education, or whether it's competitiveness, uh, things we can agree upon. I think particularly during the pandemic, we saw the strength and importance of governors, uh, that, you know, they say when you're voting that it is probably the person on the water board that is going to cause you more pain in your personal life than the president of the United States. It's the, you know, the, it's the moving up the municipal into county and, and into state. But I think there is a lot of room for governors to get on television, to, to they have a, an, the ability to have a voice to bring us back together. I, I agree with you completely. And we demonstrated that during uh, COVID. Uh, we had... Uh, uh, weekly calls, if not more frequently, 
uh, with the White House task forces. We had Democrats, we had Republican governors on there, and I want to compliment President Trump that uh, he he responded to Democrat governors uh, just as quickly as he responded to Republican governors. And, uh, and then whenever President Biden and his White House Coronavirus Task Force uh, took over, one, there was a seamless transition. Uh, it was a good handoff, which I was worried about. The vaccine was being developed during that time. There was a difference in philosophy. Uh, the Biden administration wanted to manage it more centrally uh, from the federal government perspective and control some of the channels of distribution, uh, which was tighter from the, with the federal government than what was under the Trump administration. But just illustrations of where we led, we worked together, and it should be encouraging, I think, to America whenever uh, you see how well we worked together during that time. Was there a time when, during the worst of the pandemic, when you know, the California and the New Yorks, uh, when when a lot of the, the power was in the state to get these things done. And I remember it was the governor of Virginia who had flown in things from Korea uh, because his wife knew somebody. Was there a point in which Arkansas is a relatively small state in which you thought to yourself, I'm not going to get my fair share? The, you, your story is absolutely correct. It was actually uh, uh, Larry Hogan of Maryland. Maryland. And yes. it was his wife that Who had grown uh, up in Korea. Korea. Yes. And so he brought in a shipment of uh, uh, testing supplies uh, from uh, South Korea. Uh, and, yeah, it was a challenge for us, uh, both in testing supplies and therapeutics. Uh, and and so we were not able to get it. All the states were on their own and competing to get it. And, you know, we would be ordering uh, our supply and uh, uh, we would have to order time on the factory floor. Uh, and it was for PPE as well mm -hmm. as anything, you yeah. know, the mask and everything. And uh, uh, then New York would come in and they would say, we will double the price for that factory time. And so we're outbid by another state. So, yeah, it was a struggle for us. Uh, we actually had a shipment coming from uh, Europe headed toward Arkansas, and it got to Spain, and Spain said, we need this, and they confiscated it. That's a, that was a challenge that uh, governors faced during that time. Uh, but we managed through it with a lot of difficulty. Was there a, a moment... Uh I mean, you're a man of faith. Was there a moment in which you said to yourself, I'm not sure I can handle this? this I mean, it's a lot. Uh, it was not. I am a, a person of faith. I uh, take my faith seriously, and prayer makes a big difference. And uh, I remember early during that time period, we, uh, we had a season of prayer publicly uh, for uh, the challenges that we faced as a state and the health crisis that we were in. Uh, I, I prayed uh, more regularly probably than uh, uh, it should have been an example for all of my life how I prayed uh, during the uh, pandemic. Uh, but, you know, I was blessed with good people around me, and uh, we had a health director that was a person of faith as well. And uh, uh, so it was, it, was, it was a challenge. But I, when I think about the challenges I faced, they're nothing compared to our health care workers Sure. Uh, our nurses that were out there and how they were struggling and dealing with death and uh, their own safety as well and, and their children. So it was just a tough time for our country. But once again, we're resilient. Uh, we come through it and uh, we're excited to be together again. And, uh, and, and I think the future really looks bright. I've lived in a number of places around the United States and, and uh, spent some time in Salt Lake City. It's how I know Governor Cox. Um, and there are places that if they have if you haven't been to Salt Lake City, if you haven't been to, to Arkansas, you may have a, a vision in your head of what it represents and what it is and those sorts of things. How do you market Arkansas uh, in a way that says more than, you know, we're that little state kind of near Texas. 
or as uh, uh, former President uh, Herbert Walker Bush described uh, when he was running against Clinton, he said Arkansas is that state between Oklahoma and Texas. Yes. He had his geography off just a little <laughs> bit during that time. <laughs> We're over to the right. you, you, you may recall that President Trump uh, con- congratulated the entire state of Kansas on their, on their big Kansas City Chiefs win <laughs> in the Super Bowl. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that is a little bit of a challenge uh, for a state like Arkansas, particularly when I travel internationally. Yes. And... Uh, so one of the things that uh, I would connect Arkansas with is uh, uh, former Senator J. William Fulbright, who started the Fulbright School and Scholars. And, uh, and so every country has benefited from that scholarship program. And, and so they, oh, that's Arkansas. And then, of course, uh, many of them remember, but I re- remind them that uh, former President Bill Clinton was from Arkansas. And then everybody knows Walmart. And uh, but sometimes they didn't make the connection between the international home of Walmart and Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dassault Falcon Jet. Uh, everybody uh, knows of those Falcon Jets. Sure. They buy them globally. Well, I remind them that if you buy a Dassault Falcon Jet, you've got to come into Little Rock, Arkansas to pick it up because uh, we do the final assembly there. <laughs> so you start telling those stories. And uh, probably the one that attracted uh, the most attention was, say, that Arkansas is the only place uh, that has the diamond mine in North America, and you can come and you can actually hunt for diamonds. Hmm. You can pay $17, come down here to Nashville, Arkansas, and uh, you can hunt for diamonds. As I recall, there's a diamond on your flag, isn't there? Is that? That's right. We're the diamond state. Well, among, yes. All right. Yeah. Good. I can quiz you. What's your state song? Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> State flowers. <laughs> uh, my wife is very, very good at all this. She <laughs> well, was first lady. She a long be. story. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Walmart, and uh, this was a question from the audience. Besides uh, Walmart and, and Tyson, uh, what other areas of uh, fuel your economy? Well, one uh, new exciting area is that uh, soon uh, we'll have one county in northeast Arkansas, Mississippi County. Home is has Blyville, Osceola there. And we will produce more steel in that one county than any other county in the United States. And uh, we have uh, have Nucor Yamada steel. Uh, we have uh, uh, U.S. steel that moved in as long as a whole raft of other steel companies surrounding it. But United States Steel out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, just uh, announced, uh, which we won the competition for, uh, 900 jobs, a $3 billion investment, and the average wage rate will be $100,000 oh. for those 900 jobs. And it'll be the most technologically advanced steel mill probably in the world. And it'll all be right there in uh, northeast Arkansas. So that's been a great success story for us and one something that probably everybody doesn't know. Just briefly, the last question was about climate change. You've got a big steel mill, but Arkansans believe in climate change and... And you're doing something to fight it? Uh, we are. Uh, we, uh, first of all, we, uh, I, I said that we're the diamond state. We're also the natural state. Uh, we love our, our beauty. We've got two uh, national forests. We've got uh, 50-some state parks. And so come visit us, spend some money there. Uh, but uh, we have the Buffalo National Re- uh, Scenic River, extraordinary natural resources there, and very proud of those. And we work hard to keep uh, them uh, beautiful, uh, keep the air clean, our streams clean. And, uh, you know, I grew up on the Spavanaugh Creek, and uh, I drank out of the creek. Uh, that's uh, the, what I remember in our state. But let me talk more specifically about uh, our, our climate and being uh, I'm sensitive. I'm going to give you two minutes because I've got four minutes left, but go right. right ahead. Uh, we're a big solar state. Okay. Uh, so we have uh, solar energy. We have nuclear energy. Uh, but the the solar is growing because Arkansas has more days of sunshine than Florida. <laughs> and so it's a very... <laughs> the sunshine state. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very good state for solar, and we're expanding very broadly in that. So you will term out at the end of uh, this term that's in January. Uh, is that right? That's correct. Okay, I saw a frown. So maybe wh- what do you wish you had more time to do? Well, uh, in Arkansas, uh, what I wish I had more time to do would be to uh, develop 
Uh, our workforce education, we've done a lot there. We're continuing to improve it, but it's so critical to our young people. Uh, I enjoy uh, tremendously the uh, uh, economic development side of uh, the job of being governor. But I'm happy with eight years. Uh, we've had a very successful time from lowering taxes, transforming state government, you know, focusing on education. Uh, and then, uh, you know, also we passed a big uh, transportation bill. So we've got uh, done a lot, and we're going to continue over the next 10 months. Uh, now, your next question is... Well, I think you know my next question. <laughs> I want to let you ask. All me. right. Well, where do you go from here? <laughs> well, you, you know, and, and I've spent a lifetime in public... And if you'd service. like to declare just here, uh, just, just I think that now. would be exciting. In California. In California. Right that'd be a real political <laughs> move, wouldn't it? <laughs> Uh, I've spent 25 years uh, as a practicing lawyer, so I enjoy the private sector. I've done a lot of uh, uh, business side of things. But uh, I am concerned about our country. And when I say concern, I just believe that America continues to need to project strength abroad. Mm -hmm. After 9-11, uh, I was at Homeland Security, and I was sent by the president over to Europe uh, to help negotiate agreements on uh, exchanging information to help, uh, you know, detect terrorists. And the goodwill that the United States had in Europe at that time was extraordinary. Uh, they know how we fought for their freedom in World War II. They know how we've been strong allies with NATO. Uh, and then they supported us after 9-11. I see a lot of that squandered over time. And we need to rebuild America, not just as a strong nation, but as a good nation. And, uh, and so that is important to me. It's important to me that we give our young people that opportunity of moving up, of fairness, of fairness in our system. And so I want to see our country strong on those values, and I want to be a part of that future. So... Uh, I'm going to be engaged uh, this year uh, on those national issues, and uh, stay tuned for next year. We'll see. I, I look forward to staying tuned. Thank you, Governor, so very much for your time this evening. Thank you. I also want to thank everyone who was here, and then, of course, everyone online as well. Now, this program and others like it will soon be online at the website as well. One of the most exciting things of the evening is I've never adjourned anything in my entire life. But I am to say, I am Scott McGrew, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. <laughs> You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.